Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. This week's episode is a wide-ranging conversation with the designer, writer, curator, and educator James Langdon. James helps run Eastside Projects, an exhibition space in London, has written for publications like The Serving Library and Bricks from the Kiln, and has researched and written extensively on the work of the great designer Norman Potter. And that's actually how I was first introduced to James' work. He published a fascinating essay on Potter and his relationship to Potter's work for the Serving Library a couple years ago that I just loved. And I quickly sought out his other essays and design work to learn more about him. In this episode, James and I talk about how he discovered dot 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 and how that kind of prompted him to begin practicing graphic design. We talk about why Norman Potter has been so influential to his practice and why he finds him such a fascinating individual and designer. Uh, We also talk about the role of writing in his design process and his School for Design Fiction project and how he defines that term, design fiction. This was such a fascinating conversation for me. We talk about a lot and I really think James's work embodies so much of what this podcast is about. And so it was a real treat to talk to him about how he thinks about his work and his interesting approach to design. So let's get right into it. This is me and James Langdon. You know, I, I've been following your work for a couple years now, but it was actually it was through the serving library I think where I first uh, first learned about you, and it was a piece you you had written about uh, Norman Potter, and so I came to your work first as a um, knowing you as a writer uh, and not as a designer or curator or all of these kind of other things that you do, and so I thought that might actually be a good place to start with kind of what. What came first for you? Was it the this kind of the the writing side or the the design side? Well, design practice absolutely came first for me, but it's maybe important to say how I even arrived at that because okay. library and dot 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 are quite important parts of that story. Oh, great! So I didn't. I studied fine art in the late nineties in England. Um, I was making abstract paintings in, in quite a hermetic <laughs> studio environment okay. and was, you know, thoroughly engaged in that practice, but somehow conscious that it was never going to continue beyond the study. So I practiced that way for three years, but I never really had a big interest in actually functioning as an artist. Um, Mm. outside Mm. of school Uh, and the thing that really made me aware of graphic design was dot 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 and I I have got all the issues of that because I just actually I really discovered it I was you know looking for that kind of voice at exactly the moment that it appeared so I was reading it in real time and for me that was yeah such a defining influence in a way because I having Having left school, I'd gone to work in a contemporary art gallery in Birmingham and was, I I can't really remember, but I think I was superficially interested in graphic design. I I remember that I'd done the 
design for the uh, degree show publication. Uh, and I definitely, within a few years of working in that gallery, uh, started doing posters and, and things like that in-house. And my role there eventually became this in-house designer role. But that, the, the, the aesthetics that I understood of, of graphic design in that moment was so different. You know, they were so much defined by uh, how you translated and represented white cube type exhibitions mm-hmm. in, in catalogues. I, I remember when I was studying painting still that I'd, I definitely knew about David Carson, and, but, but sort of primarily as visual propositions. I, I didn't really, you know, think about them as in what they represented for graphic design. I, I just was interested in those aesthetics. I mean, that, that's actually really interesting because as I was kind of going back preparing for this, I was rereading a lot of your your essays and I was struck by how similar the sensibilities were to early dot, dot, dot. And just kind of the way you write and the way you unfold stories feels very much a part of, of what they were doing. And so it's interesting that that was really your first kind of introduction to the design profession, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, but, but I don't know if it made that much influence on me visually. Okay. There were already sort of, uh, other forces that were shaping me in that way. But there is something really critical about dot, 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 which is the idea that I was aware of as soon as I saw it and read it, that, that you could, that you should read as a designer, you should read outside of design. Mm-hmm. There's something kind of homogenous about just practicing and reading design. And that was always really clearly transmitted in dot, dot, dot. And I was thinking about this myself in in imagining what this conversation would be like, that that really, really uh, um, had a big influence on the things, on the writing that I've done, because it's always been so much about, well, the practice... Something that I've found practicing as a designer is that there is this possibility that your collaborators can define a syllabus for you. That as you, um, you know, proceed through different jobs, for me, that's always or almost always involved working in relation to contemporary artists. Mm -hmm. You find that that. Um, in your role as mediating their work, you find yourself trying to read around it and you have conversations with artists, they suggest things to you. And that's that's always seemed to me such a wonderful part of it, that at any moment you could look at your reading list and it reflects the people that you're working with. So I always thought of, and the, the three or four things that I've written for Serving Library are in a way, coming from situations where you you want to start directing that idea, reflecting it somehow, that, that writing that you do, mm-hmm. you know, shaping your own syllabus in a way, could then start to inform practice. I, I want to quick go back a little bit to, to your early career before we move on a little bit, talking about kind of dot, 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 
you were kind of seeking out that kind of thing and you were kind of working as a designer. I'm I'm very curious kind of how how aware of quote unquote graphic design you were. Did you know did you know that that was a job that people did and did you kind of know what that entailed or was that kind of a a, a learning learning as you were doing it kind of thing? Yeah, I was absolutely aware of it, but I, I would say that the timing of these of that moment was important because it wasn't really, uh, so this would have been, yeah, well, it was 99 when I graduated. So in, it, it still really seems like a different era to me. In the, the sense that you, the way that you found out about things was much more of a journey. So right. I, just, I don't really have an example. No, maybe I do. I mean, record shopping was the, the thing that I always mm. recall that, that we used to take our student loans <laughs> and, you know, travel to London, go to Rough Trade Records, find something that you knew, find a, some, uh, an artist that you recognized, and the, the shop buyer would have written, handwritten a message in the corner of, of, of another record and it would say something like if you like this you will also like this right. so your network was expanding really slowly but but every expansion required some commitment from you you know you had to really commit to buying something to hear it mm-hmm. so I think in graphic design that did happen for me but later I can remember distinctly uh, trying to uh, going through the the list of works in the back of the Mavis and Van Dersen <laughs> yeah, and then trying to buy those books because I, it definitely it definitely happened for me that I was gradually discovering interesting designers and wanting to just look at the work yeah at, you know in a sort of way that you learned how to do something by looking at it. Right. Yeah. No, I relate. I relate to that so much. I mean, I'm thinking back to when I was in high school and this was kind of the mid 2000s. So it was a little bit kind of after you were doing this and it was the same thing, buying books at the books, buying design books at the bookstore and then looking at every designer that was referenced there, buying those books. Um, And that was kind of how I built my kind of visual vocabulary as a, you know, 15 year old kid or something like that. Yeah, I think it's there's something really valuable about it. It's not, it, it is problematic as well, or, it's, or that in in my case it was having not had any technical education in design because it's it's very funny to look back at things that I made during that period where mm-hmm. it's really obvious that certain ideas were being absorbed about you know what the what the expressive or communicative possibilities of a piece of design could be but there are just massive obvious yes things that are completely wrong and and it's really obvious uh, i can really recognize when i first saw the yost hokuli detail in typography because oh, yeah. after that i really corrected lots of things that i was doing wrong previously oh that that is so funny because 
I literally had this experience this morning. I was, I've been cleaning out some things in, in my studio here and found a bunch of photographs of old work and had that same moment where it was like, oh, it, you know, there's, there's glimmers of things happening here, but technically and formally, this is so, so bad. <laughs> um, I'm, so I'm curious though, I kind of want to, I'm interested then in, in where the shift happened for you in not just being a, uh, I, I don't know how to phrase this exactly, not just being a consumer of things like dot, 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 but then also being someone who participated in that or where, where, when writing and these kind of other activities you were doing, how did those start to fit into this practice that you were developing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite hard to remember exactly what that was in the beginning, but I would say that those there are two pieces that I wrote for Stuart for Serving Library. Um, I mean, this is quite recent, but it still, in a way, does seem like the beginning of something. Um, one of them was about voice, and the other one is about uh, rock climbing in Yosemite Valley. And to me, those they still feel like very, very clear examples of uh, concerns that were arrived at through practice and then investigated through reading that eventually became writing because, not because, but and that produces, in a way, writing produces this opportunity that you that feels different to practice in that you you have this very intensive period of concentration and you have to negotiate syntax you know you have to you have to construct sentences and paragraphs and try to do it rigorously and try to think the whole thing through and just that process and the process of having an editor and actually publishing Right. means that those works become very high resolution in a way. They become really clear expressions and um, definitions of that, that period of interest. I think this is a good place to actually kind of bring up Norman Potter a little bit because it's reminding me of the piece you wrote for the Serving Library about, about him. I'd like to talk about your interest in him um, in a bit, but there was something in, in the piece on the Serving Library that you wrote where, where you say that you were almost kind of turned off by his uh the importance he was putting on writing in the design process um and and i'm, I'm going to read back a, a bit of what of what you said there uh where you said for potter writing was an essential instrument of design at once a tool for designing and a tool for decoding artifacts and that that really resonates with me, obviously. That's kind of what so much of this project is about. But I was really interested in, and I think that's kind of what you're, you're talking about right now, but I'm, I'm, I was kind of surprised that you were kind of initially turned off by that. And so I'm interested in how you started to work through that in your own practice and started to find writing valuable to you because it is clearly now, the way you write that about Potter, I feel like that's kind of how you approach it also. Yeah, but, well, so for me, I, I discovered Potter 
again, absolutely through dot, dot, dot. Mm -hmm. And um, what is a designer is the first thing of his that I read. And that would have been really like early 2000s, just when I was beginning to be to be a designer. Uh, but the thing specifically that that felt very old fashioned in a way about his writing is that he there's a big emphasis on writing reports and on students using writing to define a brief or uh, clarify a position in relation to their client. And having come from a contemporary art background, it just felt that this delaying of, of the visual felt very un, unfamiliar to me. Oh, interesting. So, so that, it, at the time, I thought that was something that made Potter old-fashioned. <laughs> yeah. I, don't, I don't know if it really is that. I mean, I think that his, his writing is always very thorough and, you know, sort of procedural sometimes. Um, but, but now I would probably think about that as just being that he's always trying to emphasize the, the relational, the dialogue with somebody. It, I, I feel like, it, in a way, I think for me, it's really, I have just this sense of Potter overall that his sensibility is very English. And yeah. I don't know whether it really is evident in that one particular character. <laughs> yeah. um, so has your opinion changed um, of, of him and of this idea of kind of writing as, as, as a way of kind of understanding the brief or understanding design over, over the years? Yeah, definitely. I mean, maybe I would still say that the insistence on writing rather than, uh, you know, conversational communications is still, that still feels a little bit alien to me. Really? Uh, yeah, maybe just in the sense that, that he probably never experienced email, but, <laughs> you know, yeah, the idea yeah. that you would write a very long inquiring email to a client, you know, to, to clarify things. People would find that so excessive, probably. So it feels like that kind of communication that he's talking about is still really central to, to how I think about a design process, but I just don't know that I would do it quite that way. But the other thing about it, of course, is that that book is in some way addressed to students. Right. So it's, it's about just introducing the idea that you should do that. It's not so specifically about the, the right. you should just do it in that particular format. Well, I, I don't mean to get too, I don't, I don't mean to go too deep on Potter, but now I'm, I'm actually kind of very curious and kind of hearing, I, I don't mean to project onto you, but kind of hearing this kind of, kind of wrestling with with what he's talking about a little bit your fascination with him that you've dedicated a large part of your career to kind of researching him to uh you know buying that the home that he lived in what, what's kind of your relationship to him and how has has this figure kind of influenced influenced you yeah it's a good question because for me the all of that work and the writing that i'm have done and I'm doing about him has a really different character to those bits of writing that we talked about before. Yeah. So, so the other the other side of the first experience of reading him, so I, 
as we said, I reacted. There were some bits of it of, of him that felt very unfamiliar, but there was also the, the the thing about him that I still feel really inspired by is that he had such high expectations of design mm. mm-hmm. that he writes about um, designed artifacts in this way that uh, draws meaning from them, and it, right. and it it felt to me like. It's certainly not important to me to define that in relation to art, for example. Like, is it about saying that design is art? And he talks about this in the book. There's a chapter at the beginning that's dedicated to that. But it's just the idea that there should be no different vocabulary, that your expectations of um, of an artifact that might be meaningful could be equally high in relation to design as to art as to any other aspect of life that that made such a big impression on me but i would say that his influence and the writing that i've done about him is is coming has a very different relationship to my practice i think it well, well okay so there's one one part of his vocabulary that I still use very often in relation to practice, and that's the word isomorph. Mm. Uh, it's a it's a word that I think he got from Anthony Froschow, who was a close friend of his, a graphic right. designer. Right. Also, um, he had a publishing. Froschow had a publishing company called Isomorph, and uh, Potter also used that term in his writing most. Um, frequently in relation to his poetry. Uh, He gave a definition of it that I think he got from chemistry. And it says, um, I'll quote him, it says, the reinforcement that occurs in performance. Oh, wait, okay, so he's talking here specifically about uh, he designed a set, a stage set for uh, a reading of a series of poems that he'd written. And the set... Uh, was designed to resemble, when seen from above, the typewriter that he wrote the poems on. So it's this whole very integrated uh, way of looking at the apparatus of the text mm-hmm. in relation to the in relation to the mechanical apparatus of the typewriter and then the, the spatial apparatus of the performance. So he wrote the reinforcement that occurs in performance is isomorphic with the structure, content, and general intention of the work in written form. It should follow, and does, that isomism, isomorphism is a theme of the work. And then he gives this dictionary definition, similarity in unrelated forms, similarity in crystalline form, combined with similar chemical constitution. So that, <laughs> that, um, that term is... The, the research that I've done into it indicates that it's actually more commonly used in the vocabulary of mathematics. So in mathematics, it's called, uh, it's defined as uh, the word derives from the Greek iso, meaning equal, and morphosis mm-hmm. to form or to shape. And isomorphism is a map that pre- preserves sets and relations among elements. So, to me, I, I over time, I, I don't think that word made any impression on me when I was first reading 
but over time it's come to represent this uh, like certain way of decision making in graphic design for me it's quite tied to to contemporary art but I don't know if it if it really is I think that's just my experience of working with it and it's to 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 make an isomorphic design gesture to me is about finding a way of so it goes back to that thought about how an artist that you're working with someone whose content you're representing through design defines a syllabus to you mm-hmm. that you read through them you gain an understanding of their practice and then you try to make decisions in terms of layout or material or procedure or format that that transmit those transmit that understanding and it's the idea that those decisions that way of thinking where you try to uh, embody things about the thing that you're communicating is isomorphic that's that's the connection to that word for me I mean, we didn't really talk about this when we were talking about your background, but I think it's it's worth kind of picking apart a little bit is how how your background in in art and being a painter and then your f- kind of first first jobs working as a designer are in the art world. And that's still a lot of kind of where you work. Do you think that working with artists, working with curators, you know, being an artist and a curator yourself influence how does how does that background and that those kind of the discourses around those fields change how you think about graphic design or or what we would call design as opposed to art if there even is a difference do you know what i you know what i mean that's kind of a weird question no i think i uh, i mean what i would say to that is that in my experience those that transition was much more defined by personal relationships than it was by, uh, you know, sort of thinking about those two fields and their literature. Mm. So I, I could say it really actually in, in terms of individuals. So when I worked in the, the gallery that I worked in after I first graduated, the, the director of that gallery had a very specific aesthetic which which was quite uh white cube would be the kind of cliche way that you would describe that now where things are presented in quite an isolated way uh there's a there's a an assumption maybe that 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 there's a clarity provided by making the spatial situation where you can just apprehend one thing at a time uh and then Eastside projects and that whole other period of time that I spent working in relation to contemporary art, but, but through a completely different curatorial proposition that was much more layered and complex and time-based. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thinking it's maybe important to name people here to say that that Gavin Wade and Celine Condorelli, those are in a way their curatorial propositions that I was responding to. So it felt like through those relationships, um, and Jonathan Watkins was the curator in at ICOM, that was the first institution where I worked, it felt more like 
my the sense that I feel now that those that the work that I did graphically to to translate those two curatorial propositions feels very reconciled to me now. There were definitely periods in my work where I I felt like they were almost two different modes that I worked in. Oh, interesting. But, But now I feel much more continuity between those things. And I would say that that really just comes from those personal relationships, you know, that you... This thing always happens or happens when you collaborate with someone over a longer period that you, in a, in a positive way, you start to instrumentalize each other's practices. You start right. to think through the, the, the possibilities of things that that other person can make. So it all just got, you know, somehow blended together by that experience and didn't feel so much anymore like like that idea of modes. Yeah, I mean, th- this is one of the one of the topics or kind of interests that I have that come up in a lot of these conversations that I have is this idea of of the expanded practice is kind of I think the best way to talk about it. And so it's not just thinking about graphic design as you know uh, design kind of in service of somebody else's content or to sell something or something like that, but also includes writing and authorship and researching and curating and teaching. And what, as, as someone who, who is kind of looking at your work from the outside and has been kind of watching, watching you work from afar, it seems like you don't really see a difference between writing an essay and and doing a, a design for for a gallery or researching norman potter or or teaching a workshop or something like that it all seems like it comes from one place for you is that kind of do, do you see it like that um no okay no i, no, I don't think so i, I feel like the, the answer the, the way that i would respond to that has changed over time where I definitely can remember being, you know, say giving a lecture somewhere and showing some work and being asked about distinctions between things like design and art or mm-hmm. you know, other, other kind of formal distinctions or uh, format distinctions and and reacting more consistently with what you just said, that there's no difference and mm-hmm this idea can be used in, in all of these contexts. And I, I still think that, but I just don't know how useful that idea is really in any, in any given situation because it seems more important than saying that is to say, be specific, you know, to react on specific things in a situation. Right. Or, um, uh, so there are, there are, analogies that you can make here and that I I spent quite a lot of time thinking about this earlier in my practice like analogies between walls and pages these kinds of thoughts Mm -hmm. I suppose they are quite generative sometimes and and there was for me a lot of work that came out of um, well was channeled through language I suppose to make an interface between uh, um, exhibitions and graphic design. Yeah. So, 
at Eastside projects, we we used the the verb display very often because that mm. seemed like a verb that you could equally apply to graphic design and exhibition design, and it somehow made made that decision making seem more gestural that you yeah. could describe things in terms of gestures or moves, and that that you know, by channeling it through language in that way, then you sometimes arrive at clarity in a conversation about how to do something really specific, like, do we use this or that ink or process? And so I feel like that's, that is doing a bit what you were um, implying, but to me, it's just, there are still distinctions. And I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if they're just like historical distinctions like that we have these categories now and certain things gravitate towards them. But but I feel like even if it's not that, there are just still other constructs, social constructs that mean the experience of being an artist or being a designer is different and, and it's kind of just confusing not to <laughs> react to that. Yeah, yeah, no, I know, I know exactly what you mean. Um, and so I want to, I'm going to kind of reframe the question or kind of ask you a similar question kind of in a, in a different way, because, because I, I, I think I agree with, with kind of the way you're talking about it. And so I, I guess kind of what I'm curious about is if you, if you have any thoughts or have noticed anything, even just in your own work of kind of being a how does being a, a designer influence how you write or vice versa? Or how does being a designer influence, um, you know, thinking about curating or leading a workshop? Like how do the, how do the traits of design or the modes of working in design influence when you kind of cross into one of those other disciplines and then vice versa? How do those kind of then, return and influence your design process yeah so the i the idea of something that i really value about about being in the role of a designer is that there's there's always there's the expectation there's the requirement to be responsive mm -hmm. uh, and i i think that that word if or, or if you would try to um if you so bef thinking bef thinking about having been asked this kind of question before, it, it would I think it would be over oversimplifying it to say that this is about freedom, but I have heard this uh, this kind of false proposition made about there being some kind of axis between art and design, which is about freedom, that as an artist, you have more freedom than oh, you do correct. as a designer. And as a designer, you're inherently constrained. So the, the difficulty I have with that is that I feel like all of the most interesting artistic practices actually seek uh, the thing to respond to. So there's right. a kind of mm -hmm. situation dynamic that is much more alike with with what is familiar to designers. So I, I think that maybe there is something, maybe this goes back to that Potter thing about asking questions that are, that you're asking in order to 
inform some response that you're going to make through practice. I feel like in that sense, having done things in the order that I've done them, the, the learning graphic design through practice has definitely made an impression on how I've approached writing. And I think down to a really micro level where I, I think I hardly ever write a sentence or like think about what is the right, the, the, the most appropriate word to put in that sentence without channeling that thought through practice somehow. Mm. I think thinking of it in decision-making terms that are that come to me through that experience of graphic design. Do you, so do you, when you, this is, this is a, a very weird kind of oversimplified question and I apologize for it in advance, but are you, are you kind of, do you think about writing differently when you're designing the container that that writing's sitting in versus, you know, writing for a, you know, a publication or, or something like the serving library where it all kind of goes in into a template? Does that change how you think about kind of the structuring, like down to the practical level, the structuring of a sentence? You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But I think, I, I think mostly in negative ways, mm. I think that it's almost always better not to do that yeah the the times i, I can remember when i first saw edward tufty's books mm. they're they're all really obviously done like that like mm -hmm. written in uh, page layout software because you really get the sense that each opening each double page spread of the book is like one unit of the argument right it's very rare that a paragraph runs over onto the next opening. Yeah. I kind of admire that, but actually as a, it's really hard to get away from the idea that by doing that, you, you are actually compromising meaning mm -hmm. because you're making these choices that are actually about fitting and condensing, which are, which have nothing to do really with, or most likely have nothing to do with what you're actually writing mm -hmm. about. Yeah. Do do you? I I I kind of am now thinking about that. Thinking about the opposite end, where do you design? Do you do you find yourself designing differently, or do you approach your work as a designer differently when it's your own content or your own kind of text versus when it's for somebody else? Are those processes different? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. In a funny way, actually, I. I, I feel like, I can't remember which project, but I've definitely had one very weird self-conscious moment where I noticed that I was, uh, in a way, imposing less or making mm. less bold design decisions in relation to a piece of my own writing, which is you know, quite a troubling realization in a way because I'm normally always trying to resist any rhetoric of of we should make neutral design decisions, you know, this yeah. whole kind of idea that, and to, to me, I, maybe it's wrong to say it's a modernist idea, but that, that words and texts are already 
um, speaking themselves, you know, transmitting themselves. And, yeah. and, and your role is to sort of step, a, step out of the way of that signal. You know, I don't, I never think about those arguments. And I, I don't care about that at all. But there is, there, that moment somehow revealed to me that there is some kind of unconscious mechanism happening there about what kinds of how you're reflecting on content when you're making uh bolder decisions yeah i mean that's really funny this is not the first time that this has come up where where when i've talked to designers who are also writers when they're designing around their own text they play it safe they're less interested in trying kind of radical new forms than if they're designing for someone else and i don't know i would think that it would be the opposite you know and it's it comes back to this idea of freedom and constraints i guess in a little bit where you know when you have that complete freedom in your own text and your own design that's the place to kind of try these things but that actually becomes the bigger constraint than when you are working with someone else's content in a lot of ways yeah but i think in 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 my experience it was more just like this lack of tension Mm. I think that's what I'm talking that that's my problem with writing and designing uh, literally happening in one's software yeah. environment is that you there isn't that you obviously have this intimate knowledge of what you're trying to express right. so maybe in some way it 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 would be absolutely possible to align all of your design decisions with that but there's something about the tension, you know, the, 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 the yeah. communication difficulties, the trying to overcome confusion and just the very fact of it being a, a negotiation between two people. I, I think that that is, to me, that's the, that's the engine of, of how you arrive at, at good or interesting decisions. And yeah. if, you, if you don't have that, it just feels like, it is playing safe, but it's maybe not. There is a neg- the negative aspect is is sort of slightly different. I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. I I, I would be remiss if we, I don't talk about your design fiction, pro- your school for design fiction project, because um, that actually seems very related to a lot of the things that I'm interested in. And I, I, I guess kind of my, my first question around that is, is h- how you describe that project or what is that project uh, to you? Yeah, for a, so it first happened in 2013. Uh, to, to be honest, I feel quite embarrassed by it in some ways or uh, in particular... I feel like I used that term design fiction in quite a naive way. Uh, at the time, it felt like it felt like using it was was making some distinction between what I understood it to mean in a in a popular culture context, where it almost always seems to be about this very long term projection into the future. with this rhetoric that is just basically about removing the constraints that we currently have, you know, as some other excuse just to do um, 
I was going to say speculative, but I, I still think of speculative as quite a useful word. Yeah. So I need something more negative. Just <laughs> yeah. Thinking about some situation in the future that has no difficulty to it, just to enable you to make somehow more superficial, maybe is a good word, um, mm. design proposals. And I thought that at that moment in my practice, there were a couple of collaborations and projects happening that felt like they could give a different dimension to that. Um, in particular with Sophia Halton, who's a, an artist that I've worked with a few times over, over a decade and whose work I really admire. Uh, we, we'd done something together that was around this series of really interesting videos that she made called Nonsequences as a, as a yeah. play on consequences, which take very ordinary everyday scenarios. Um, for example, one of them happens in a, in a studio where the protagonist uh, picks up an apple, takes a bite of the apple, drops it on the floor and it gets dirty. So they pick it up, uh, wipe it down on their trousers eat the rest of the apple and then put it in the bin. And then she scrambles the order, the causal order of those events, but she doesn't do it through re-editing the film. She does it through behavior. So she, for example, um, takes the apple, drops it in the, in the bin, which is a plastic bag, then eats the apple through the plastic bag. Uh, so it becomes this really surreal and actually quite dark. If, if, you, if you entertain the thought that it's proposing, mm -hmm. it's dark. Yeah. So there was that, and then there was this project that I'd done with Bedford Press about um, uh, an architectural book written by Augustus Pugin called Contrasts. And I was really interested in the fact that of all arguments, of all formal arguments that you could ever read, Eugene's uh, contrast is the most binary. So he's making this, it's a critique of neoclassical English architecture, and it's framed with a comparison to what he considered the glorious, true architecture um, of the Gothic period. So he's really talking about how wonderful and virtuous Gothic architecture was and, and how degenerate and oversimplified neoclassical architecture was. But that book was published, the first edition was published in 1831, I think. Uh, and it had this really weird, uh, um, what what to my, to my eyes today looks like a, a formal compromise or a kind of discordance yeah. between the content, which is so binary, the format of the open book, which gives you this binary proposition of two pages that are divided by a binding. Uh, but but uh, there was this series of illustrations that Pugin made for his book where he showed um, the occupants of these two architectures. So there would be 
comparative drawings of Gothic and neoclassical churches. And outside the Gothic church would be uh, sort of degenerate, unruly people <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. drifting And outside the, oh no, that's the wrong way around. And outside the Gothic church, there would be a, a very orderly procession of worshippers. Right. The idea that the, the kind of purity of the architecture was was being transmitted to humans. But these illustrations were rotated 90 degrees and paired side by side on the recto pages of the book. And at that moment, when I first saw the book, it seemed just spectacularly funny that they weren't positioned on facing pages. It seemed yeah. like just the most natural, isomorphic... <laughs> Uh, way of uh, relating that content to the format of the publication. Uh, so I'd made this small edition with Bedford Press where we just photocopied all the pages and rotated them and um, <laughs> yeah. one pages. So it felt like I had these couple of things. There were some other examples too that, that were a slightly more everyday um, idea about design fiction where you still had this parallelism happening mm -hmm. um, so in Sophia Halton's work it's about these kind of parallel tracks of time or experience uh, and in this Pugin thing it was a it was making making the design moves today in relation to a problem of 170 years ago you know so, so right. there, were, there was no far future without constraints there was just uh, the time shift was was operating quite differently um so we made uh, there was a one day series of lectures that happened in leipzig for that and then there was a publication and it continued for a couple of years as uh, if I was invited to do workshops in in schools, I would I would call the workshop a school for design fiction, and we would we started to develop uh, teaching assignments based on those ideas. I feel like I don't know if I'm doing that anymore. Okay. I think I've I'm still interested in that work, but it, it doesn't feel like. It's not currently generating anything else for me. I don't think. Oh, interesting. Because the reason I, the reason I was kind of curious about your approach to it and your thoughts around it is because, you know, like you said, I think your definition of design fiction uh, is is slightly different than kind of often what it's seen. And I'm thinking about people like Metahaven, who I know also use that term in a, in a way that I think is slightly different. But when when you were talking about it, and I had read, I had first heard you talk about it uh, in the interview in Modes of Criticism that that uh, Francisco Laranjo did, did with you, um, is that you kind of talked about design being this kind of form of storytelling or this this way of kind of looking at objects uh, in kind of different ways. And, and it, it resonated with a lot of what this podcast is, which is kind of about this intersection of criticism and practice. And the way you were talking about it, it almost seemed like those completely collapsed and that these designed artifacts were and could be a 
type of criticism or a type of kind of storytelling about how we live, I guess. Yeah, I think it, I think that Pugin example mm-hmm. is is directly doing that. Yeah, but actually, that the storytelling thing, I, I think I was using that word at that time. That thought was coming. It goes back to Potter. Was coming from something that was in yeah. uh, what is a designer. There's a. I can probably do this from memory. There's a, <laughs> a quote in there that says something like. In the last analysis, every human artifact from um, poem to painting to waste paper basket expresses the total concerns of the culture that made it, something yeah. like that. Yeah. So the idea that at some level of remove, you can criticize an object and deduce from it almost all of the assumptions of, of a of the reality that produced it. Yeah. Um, so that was a, that was a really exciting thought for me, even though it seems re- really incongruous to talk about Potter and design fiction in the same sentence. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, that's exactly why I kind of wanted to, to bring it up is because I think at face value, those two don't seem like they go together. But the way you've articulated them and kind of worked through them, I actually think they're very, very connected in a lot of ways. Yeah, but to me, actually, I I think one of the reasons why I am not feeling so motivated to continue, well, mainly, let's say, to continue using the term design fiction Mm -hmm. is a feeling that 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 is unresolved, that relationship. Yeah. I mean, it might be important, maybe it's good for me to just say something that I didn't say earlier about Potter, which is that that all of the work and the writing in particular that I've done in relation to him, I feel puts me in a slightly different position than most of the positions that we've talked about in the conversation, whereby it's really defined by an an anxiety or a sense of uh, lack of authority or a difficulty in asserting authorship, which is to do with the fact that for me, Potter is such a such an articulate writer who, um, as we talked about before, yeah had these highest expectations and values in relation to design uh, and expressed them so clearly and so forcefully. Uh, I'm, I mean, in the writing, but I'm also drawing here on, on my things that I know about him as a teacher, that it feels like all of those things are things that I want to speak about, but it's very difficult when it comes to the mechanics of writing sentences, mm-hmm. it's very difficult to to get the authority to write about him because yeah. he was so articulate and so definitive. So the, the, the way that work has happened or the thing that enabled me to even do anything with that research is I found this document of his where I think it's notes for a lecture and in it he says there is a commandment if I may put it so strongly to speak of artifacts only in their presence 
for these connected reasons, I'm no longer happy to give a lecture or a seminar without illustrative material considered in some depth. Persuasive images are too a penny, but as such, they have very little meaning. Hmm. So, so that the, the first section of that, the idea of speaking of artifacts in their presence, has become the <laughs> yeah. the thing that's making that writing possible for me. So the the text, the Potter text that I did for Serving Library is a good example of that, where it's about this journey to encounter uh, a piece of uh, a kitchen designed by Potter, which mm -hmm. I had only known through this very stylized, um, unusually for him, very stylized uh, photograph of it in Models and Constructs, his monograph. And uh, there are very few, I don't know if it's right to say few surviving, but there are very few accessible examples of his work as a designer. And I'd met his daughter who had been keeping this kitchen in storage and mm. made a journey to go and, and see it. And all of the writing follows from what you could learn by the by your expectation of it from the image right. and the experience of actually um, handling and seeing that thing firsthand. So it, in a way, it's quite a metaphorical construct. You're, you're trying to use the patination, the condition, the, the neglect, the yeah. institutional neglect of him as a designer. You're trying to observe things that you want to say about him in the details of what survives him. Um, I, I, I kind of like what you're just saying and connecting that to, again, to this idea of uh, these artifacts being uh, these kind of stories or these ways that you can kind of learn about culture. And this, this podcast is, is really about the design discourse and how we talk about design. Um, and uh, both kind of publicly and within our, ourselves. And something that I ask everybody is, what are the the issues or the topics or subjects that that you think designers should be kind of talking about, writing about, thinking about right now, kind of in this moment? Yeah, it's hard for me to respond to that, actually, because I really, that, that point that I was making earlier about... yeah coming to design through dot 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 and then that giving me this um or the experience of working with people defining your reading it, mm -hmm. it's so natural to me now that that i it's almost like i'm actually quite ignorant of of a certain design <laughs> yeah. because I, I direct my attention so much towards other things um you know like it reading reading speculatively, reading subjects outside of design that are yeah. directly coming to me through, um, you know, acquiring background for a, a client project. I think about that in terms of what's the possibility of, of um, a subject, for example, like neuroscience. Right. Are, there, yeah. are, there, are there possibilities in that that, that the kind of designer that I am could 
work interestingly in relation to. There's this other thing that happens. This is really off off uh, divergent. No, answer. go for it. Yeah. I feel like one central experience of being a designer is the idea that, or the reality that the work you do attracts more work like it. Right. So if you want to grow your practice or change direction, at a certain point, you need to force that. Yeah. And reading is, for me, one way to initiate that kind of conversation where if there's a a field of knowledge production, say, um, I mean, this is just speaking really about a kind of current perspective of mind that I would like to expand my practice outside of working in relation to contemporary art. And I'm really interested in how reading and producing a critique of the visual communication that happens in other areas of knowledge production mm-hmm. could just understanding how that is, how that compares to the kind of graphic design that happens in relation to contemporary art. Yeah. I mean, that's, you, you actually kind of started answering what my last question was a little bit. And I, so I kind of want to rephrase the previous question and set it up for this. This other question is, is what are the things that you're thinking of? And this is what you just started answering. What are the things that you're kind of thinking about and working through right now? And then the last question is, what are the, the books or who are the kind of the writers and, and authors who have really influenced you and how you think about all of these things that, that we've been talking about, or, or if you were making a reading list of kind of, you know, your favorite books, what are those? Who are on, who are the people on that list? Yeah. So I would, I think that, um, this idea of isomorphism is something that I'm thinking about a lot Mm -hmm. and, uh, thinking about what that kind of, design decision making could also be suited to so neuroscience and um, science in general is definitely something I'm really interested in because I think there could be a a lot of possibilities there and then so I'm reading a lot around that but I would say in terms of the writers that that have felt important to me for for a longer time well I'd say a few so in relation to the Potter work the, um, the the way to write the way to write and overcome that difficulty of a, a lack of authority. I feel like there's there's someone who just does that in such an inspiring way, which is Julia Blackburn. Mm, yeah, she's a she's an English she's a novelist and a biographer, but it's her biography that's most interesting to me. Um, for example, uh, a book that she published one or two years ago is a biography of someone called John Cresk. He's a really minor um, Norfolk embroidery artist from the early 20th century. Mm. Uh, it, it's almost in a way kind of secondary who he is because the way, the way she approaches the biography is about how to deal with what you don't know. Mm. Uh, especially when you're talking and uh, when you're working in relation to someone who's dead right where do you 
how do you occupy the space that they've left behind? So her work is sometimes quite speculative, sometimes quite uh, like in a detective tradition of following small signs, but just sometimes really imaginative, the ways that she tries to get insight into this person who she can find very little about factually. I love that. Really exciting. Then um, the, the person who first got me interested in neuroscience is Michael Gazzaniga. He's, mm. he's um, a really established, sort of canonically important neuroscientist who was involved in some of the early split brain experiments in the 50s and 60s. And a couple of his books, uh, the books that he's written more recently are less technical and more philosophical about mm. this basic idea that, that when we observe, when scientists observe things in the brain that are functioning abnormally, it tells us something about how the brain, how the apparatus of the brain is set up to function. And in this research, it produced this really extraordinary body of knowledge around how we um, how we tell ourselves the story of our own existence and identity. So his work located this part of the left hemisphere of the brain that he called the interpreter. And it's the part of the brain whose function it is basically to smooth over the cacophony of sensory input that you produce huh. and make it seem believable to you. Right your experience of, of reality. Uh, I mean, I find that actually such a, to me that in one way that is a, that's an elementary part of a design reading list is to yeah what your own perceptual apparatus is doing. Yeah. Then maybe related to that would be Cosmos, uh, a novel by Vitol Gombrovich. Uh, also just incredibly suggestive for designers in, in the way that it uh, finds meaning. So in that, a really crude summary of the way narrative operates in that novel would be to say that there's again in a way a character who is, who is having a, a perceptual um, malfunction or, or, or is whose imagination is just overactively interpreting the environment so that his experience of life is everything seems to be a message. Everything <laughs> seems to be a sign that is telling him to do something. So some, some uh, accidental marks on the wall look like an arrow to him. And when he follows that arrow, he, he gets to a door, so he knows that he should go through that door. Uh. You know, this idea yeah. of, of maybe you could say that it's it's kind of comparable to the way we were talking about Potter. That yeah. there's this this sense that meaning is emanating from things and if you can just tune yourself into receiving that signal that yeah. you're, just, you're sort of connecting to a, a channel. I love that. That was great. And I'm I'm so glad we got to do this. This was so so fascinating to me. So thank you thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Grant.
This episode was recorded on December 20th, 2017. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.